Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my mother and co-host, Caroline Kilborn. Good morning, everyone, <laughs> or, or wherever you are. Wherever you are, whenever, whenever you are. <laughs> yes, right. So, Mom, uh, whenever, would, yeah. would you like to introduce our mysterious guest today? Oh yes, I would. the the book The book we're doing is entitled "The Shadow of Memory." It's a Kate Hamilton mystery by Connie Berry, and uh, Connie Berry is the author of the Kate Hamilton mysteries, set in the UK and featuring an American antiques dealer with a gift for solving crimes. Like her protagonist, Connie is raised by antique dealers who instilled in her a passion for history fine art and travel. During college, uh, she studied at the University of Freiburg in Germany and St. Clair's College, Oxford, where she fell under the spell of the British Isles. In 2019, Connie won the <clears throat> IPPY gold medal for mystery and was a finalist for the Agatha Awards Best Debut. She's a member of Mystery Writers of America and is on the board of the Guppies and her local sisters in crime chapter. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Besides reading and writing mysteries, she loves history, foreign travel, cute animals, and all things British. But she lives in Ohio with her husband and adorable Sitsu Emmy. And um, so welcome to Writer's Voices, Connie. This is quite a book, quite a story. <laughs> well, thank you, Monica and Caroline. It's delightful to be here. So when <laughs> did you decide you were going to write mysteries? You know, that's a good question, actually. Um, I've always loved mysteries. I, I discovered, like many uh, mystery writers, I discovered Agatha Christie. When I was in junior high school in my local library, just wandering through the stacks, picked it up, picked one of her books up, don't even remember which one now, and I thought at that point in time that she was my own personal discovery. That of course no one else <laughs> knew about her. <laughs> of course later I uh, I learned otherwise. But so I've I've always loved mysteries. And when I was a child, I I wrote a lot of little stories which my mother saved, and most of them contain mysteries. Um, not bodies, obviously, but. Most of them contain some kind of mystery, some strange thing that needs to be solved. So that's always kind of intrigued me. And I had been fiddling around with a story um, that became my first book, A Dream of Death. I'd been just kind of toying around with it for about 10 years. I was still working full time. And so I could, you know, I did it in the summers and and all of that. But when I retired, and this was in uh, 2017, I believe, I've lost track of time. Um, that's when I decided, you know, it's really now or never. I have the time. Um, and if I'm going to write books that will be published, I, I need to really do this on a serious basis. <clears throat> and so that's what I did. And it wasn't too long after that. I, I actually finished that first book. I d had done a massive revision um, it's changing so many things. I went from multiple points of view to first person. I went from uh, I, I took out characters, I added characters, I changed the location. I mean, it was it is the same story basically, but it was very different. And I was 
doing things that I knew I had to do, but I had been resisting. And when I did that, very shortly after that is when I um, I got my first contract. So doing things that you knew you had to do, but were resisting, like, <laughs> yeah, give, give me a real well, you know, concrete example. Okay, here. Um, well, I'll give you two real quick examples. I, I, I love books with multiple points of view. I, I loved Elizabeth George and so I thought that I would do that, but that is not the easiest thing to do. And when I actually took out all the extra multiple points of view, and then I thought, well, I've got to go back and see if there are important things that actually need to still be in the book, I, I discovered that there were hardly any. They, they were just, you know, there, there was no purpose to them. But I was just having fun with all those voices. But what it did for me was... I really got to know those characters because I was writing in their voice. So it, it wasn't wasted, but it sure took a lot of time. <laughs> and the, the most important one was um, I, I had been getting some comments about, we, you know, we can't hear Kate's voice. And I'm just like saying, okay, tell me what a voice is and I'll do it. You know, just tell me. And, um, of course, no one had a really good answer for that. And But I had been getting advice from friends and other writers, because I was involved in the writing community at that point, who said, why don't you try writing in first person? And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but I don't want to, because I like all these points of view. I like writing the way I'm writing. It was in, you know. Um, and so finally I decided, what the heck? What, what would I lose? So I, I thought, I'm just going to start writing it in first person. So I just opened my manuscript and I just started changing it. And the minute I did that, I learned Kate's voice. And she began to actually talk more. And I could, and her thoughts. And she, she had been a point of view, of course, but only one of many. So um, that was exactly the right thing to do. And I'm very glad that I finally did it after resisting. You certainly did a good job. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. So when you um, you were writing, working on that first book, and so you had spent quite a, you spent quite a bit of time on that one. But if that was only 2017 that you started working on it seriously, and you now have your fourth book out. You must have sped up quite a bit. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, when you take 10 years to write your first book, if you took 10 years to write the next book, you know, first of all, nobody would remember you and, and you can't build, but but you can't live that long. You know, I, I, I was, you know, not not 25 anymore. And so I had to speed up. But then, of course, there are deadlines and that, you know, I've I've always done better in my life with deadlines when I'm when I don't have a deadline. Um, I just I, I'm too much of a procrastinator. I just find it too easy to to do other things. And you know, one of the huge things is you tell yourself you're doing research and actually, you know, you find you're looking at things that have no connection with the book whatsoever, but are just interesting. <laughs> and so, but you um, may use them that, someday, right? <laughs> well, that's true. You know, reading it, my, my mom had been a teacher and, and she always said, you know, reading is never wasted. And and I completely agree with that because a lot of the things that I write about are actually things that I remember from my past, either having observed or having heard about or having read about. And so 
<clears throat> you're just kind of, you know, a, a, as you read, kind of building up kind of a, a little treasure chest of, of things you, you can pull out later. Right, right. But still, when you're trying to get a project done, you don't want to go down too many mm-hmm. rabbit holes. <laughs> no, and that's why having that deadline is important because it, it really helps to keep me focused. Exactly, sure. exactly. So how have the books, how has your writing changed over this, over these, you know, since your first book? <clears throat> oh, that's another good question, but maybe a hard one. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, someone else reading it might be able to say better than I do. It, it's very difficult to have a perspective on your own writing. And that's why it's such a good idea to have beta readers, people who read your work. And, and I do that for other people too, friends. And I can see things in their work. And it often occurs to me, golly, I think I'm doing the same thing. I better go back and change it. But, um, you know, I, I had a master's degree in English and English history. And I had read, you know, all the classics and, you know, just I, I'm an avid reader, I'd read thousands literally of mysteries. <clears throat> and um, and I thought, well, you know, I can do that. I, I can write. I did not know what I didn't know. And there are some <laughs> mistakes that just about every new writer makes. And you don't know you're making them. And so there was a little book by Chris Reardon, who is an editor, and it's the the, the first version of was um, don't murder your manuscript, I think. <laughs> and then she oh. she did a revision called don't sabotage your submission, and I think she was kind of widening it out to include other fiction. But she did such a good job of just outlining some of the amateur mistakes that people made and I'm just going down going yep I'm doing that (laughs) yep and so I just had to go back in and so I I really do think of that first book as as kind of a learner book like you know people talk about having learner children you know their their first child is is the one where they call the mistakes and then learn a few things so um I think that's part of the reason it, it took 10 years to write that book was because I, I had to go back so many times and, and just correct. But the one thing that I do have is, it, it is I have really high taste in, in writing. I, I have um, excellent taste, you know, because I, because I've read so much. And I think it was Ira Glass who, who talked about that on, on one of his programs about, how when you begin, your taste is really high and, and your ability to produce that is not as high and that, you know, the goal is to keep raising your own standards, you know, toward that high, high goal. So so I hope that's what I've done. I, you know, I do think that I've, um, I'm not making some of the same mistakes again, hopefully. <laughs> Well, what's one of the beginner mistakes that you know that you've that you now avoid? <laughs> you know, I'm 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 really almost embarrassed to to have to admit that <laughs> this, but but it is very true. And um, one of the things that you learn very early on is do not give a lot of backstory, especially at the beginning. Mm. 
And so when I first started writing this book, okay, so my first book begins when Kate arrives on the Hebridean island of, of Glen Ross. So in my first version of the story, <laughs> 10 years earlier than that, it started in her backyard in Cleveland. <laughs> and, then it, and then she went on a, a road trip that took her overnight at an aunt's house in Rochester, New York. I mean, it it was just just silly. But I didn't know that. I thought that was all like really interesting to me. <laughs> um, and then I went to a um, I went to a seminar by uh, given by Margie Lawson, who is a she's a writer and a, a a writing coach, and she was talking about backstory. And she said, "Think of backstory because you do need some. I mean, these characters have had a past, you know." They've had families. They've had things that have happened to them that have led up to this point. But she said, think of backstory like a huge sheet of glass. And what I want you to do is to hold that sheet of glass and drop it. <gasps> and let it break into all these little shards. And then you pick up each little shard and you, you put it into the book throughout the book. Not all at one time. Mm. And that was kind of a visual to me, and it, it so that helped me to understand what I was doing wrong, and and it was so wrong. <laughs> I mean, it just it it was just one of those mistakes where anybody reading that would go, oh no, you know, no, this isn't going to work. Because you have to begin in the in the middle of the action, really. Yeah, you should begin when something actually happens. Yeah, you know, yeah. you you want something to actually happen. Yeah. And um, but, you know, I I read manuscripts now. Sometimes I'm asked to read them or I do uh, a couple of programs through some of the organizations I'm with called like Fantasy Agent, where unpublished writers can turn in, say, 25, 50 pages of a manuscript. And then you're you are anonymous and and you just give them advice based on your own experience. And. I just see this so often that that I know I wasn't the only one. There, right, right. You just think, okay, you know, people won't understand, so I have to explain. You know, I've got to explain how how we get to this point, and you really don't. Now, in in the Shadow of Memory, being book four in the Kate Hamilton mm -hmm. mystery series, you're also having to refer back to the earlier books. And um, and I, I see where when I when something comes up in the book and when Kate is thinking about something in the past or, oh, you know, this is just like when or she and Tom are talking. This is just like when we met in Scotland or whatever. And mm -hmm. I'm really OK. So those must be referring back to what happened in earlier books. And even though I had not read those books, I, I got it kind of. Is it harder as you go along because you have you have to give enough backstory for the current reader who's coming to the book for the first time, but you don't mm. want to bore the readers who have read the earlier books, but you want to drop some hints to the earlier books because the readers who have read those books really like that. And readers who have not read those books might then be more inclined to go read those books. <laughs> so you're trying to <laughs> yeah, accomplish yeah. a lot now in a series. Yeah. You've, <laughs> 
you've actually expressed that very well, and and that is attention, and 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 it is a, you know, one of those things that that I do think about, and um, but what I've realized is that you really only have to mention things very briefly and only certain things, but something that would come up that would, like 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 if a reader who's read other books would would be reading along and, and they'd go, okay, now wait a second, you know, this this certainly would have brought up a memory here. You know, so you you have to do that but but what I have liked is what what you just said was that you were able to read this book, the fourth one, without having read any of the others and it made perfect sense. And so Quite a number of people have said that in reviews that this works well as a standalone. Yes, yes. So that there are um, character arcs that have developed from the first book now to the fourth, and hopefully going forward. Um, but so you know, if you're a person that wants to know all that, it'd be good to start at the beginning. But I'm I'm very glad that the books can be read as standalones. Now, one I'm I'm guessing that in the earlier books, Kate's mother plays a slightly bigger role than in this one. Is that is that true? Kate's mother plays a huge role in her life, okay. and uh, but we have never met her in person. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, we, okay. Um, because <laughs> she is in Wisconsin, and uh, Kate has been in England when we have met her, and so. All of the interaction between them have been either through email, text, or on the telephone. But um, Kate, Kate's mother is a person that Kate does turn to. She has a very high regard for her mother. Her mother is, is an antiques expert, so she would naturally turn to her when she has questions about antiques. But she is also a person that Kate admires. She is very different than Kate. Kate is... Um, Kate tends to be a little bit pessimistic. Um, she she's had losses in her life, um, um, and so has her mother. But her mother has weathered that. Her her mother is very open, upfront, plain speaking. Um, has a lot of wisdom, and so she she has kind of been that person that Kate can bounce things off of. We all need that. Cool, cool. Especially if you're trying to solve a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, have you spent a lot of time in England yourself? Yes, um, not as much as I would like to. I I would love to go sometime and spend like an entire summer. Um, mm. But of course, I do have a husband, and he does work, and so uh, we we tend to go once or twice a year now. Have been doing that for quite a long time. We just were there for three weeks in October. I was um, scouting out some locations in Devon, actually, um, and we spent quite a bit of time in Suffolk, where this takes place. I've I've developed some um, resources, you know, people there. Um, I have a detective inspector in the Suffolk Constabulary, really in the same position that Tom is in, and I have. Um, oh, you're kidding! Uh, That's wonderful. Oh yes, she. It, it, it's a woman, and um, a couple of years ago, she spent a whole day with me, taking me all over the building, and took me to the facility where they have, um, where they house prisoners and have the intake, and 
answered all my questions. I found out later it was her day off. And I was I was just so so grateful to her. And then you know if if I have a question, I will shoot her an email, and she is always really quick to answer. I also have a clergyman in the in the Church of England, and I have asked him questions. I have um, a man who was uh, one of the higher up people in the at the National Trust, um, and I have a lawyer and a a coroner's um, assistant. So, um, how yeah, did, that, that's been helpful. How did you go about developing all these resources? You know, it's really not very difficult. Um, for my detective inspector, I just wrote to them and said, um, I'm, you know, told them what I was doing, gave them my website. You know, I said, I'm, you know, I'm writing a series. I, it's not a police procedural. I don't need to you know, have every single detail in here, but what I do say, I want it to be correct. Is there someone, um, like a liaison officer who'd be willing to answer questions? And they came back with the name of this um, woman, Detective Inspector. And so I contacted her, and she's, she has just been very, very kind. I, I did not have the same experience this p past year when I was reaching out to the um, Devon police, they they were very, very reluctant to oh. talk to me. And they finally said, well, you could you could contact some of our retired police officers. And, and they told me how to do that. And so I did. And the one I uh, connected with was nice. And he said, OK, I will answer your questions. But then, you know, that's it. Because, you know, things have changed. I I retired 20 years ago things have really changed. So I think I just lucked out. Mm. Uh, you know, also, um, when I was doing the, the first book on, on the Isle of Glenroth, it was, um, oh, my goodness, I, I'm horrible with names. Um, who is the <laughs> wonderful woman writer who writes Scottish um, crime writer? Do you remember her oh. name? Oh, she's so famous. She's Scottish. She's got I little spiky <laughs> silver hair. Um, I, I don't she's, remember she's either. Huge. Yeah, I, I know. That always <laughs> happens to me. But but anyway, um, I contacted her and asked her for a resource, and, and she gave me the name of the um, person on the Isle of Skye. So I was able to. Oh, nice. Yeah. So that was really kind of, of her, of both of them. That is great. Um I'm, I just Googled, is it Val McDermott? Yes, it's yes. Val McDermott. Thank you so much. <laughs> Perfect. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Connie Berry, author of The Shadow of Memory, a Kate Hamilton mystery. Caroline, do you have some questions? Well, I, there's a there's a a part of, a very important part of this story is that they're trying to uh, uh, trying to figure out if a painting by a famous uh, author or famous artist is really authentic, and that the procedure that that they have to go through to to determine that I had never realized how intricate it is, and that was very interesting to me. That that you were, how did you find all that out? That you know what they have to do. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm so glad that you found it interesting because as I was thinking about this, I thought I'd, I have to know something about it. I, 
I don't know that um, all those procedures, th this is all fairly new, actually. It's, you know, it's not brand new, but it's all fairly new. And it's interesting because the first time I heard about it was um, just online. I think it was the Telegraph from London or something. And there was a, um, a gallery in England had sold a Franz Hall's painting. This is a, a very old painting as well to Sotheby's Gallery, and Sotheby's sold it at auction to an American collector for $10 million. They oh, bought it for God. $5 million, I believe, and sold it for $10 oh, million. Oh, my God. So anyways, um, this painting then was subjected to this scientific analysis, and it turned out to be um, a forgery. And oh. so... There was a huge, you know, they obviously gave the $10 million back to the American collector, and then they sued the gallery, and that went through the, the courts for quite a long time. It was just recently settled. But um, through looking at that, and, and this is one of those things where I, I just kind of found it, you know, and I just got really interested, not thinking that I would be using this in a book at some point. And uh -huh. I started to delve further into it, and I found out that um, there are other very fine paintings. One was uh, uh, Lucas Cronick the Elder. This is like, you know, early 14th, late 14th century, early 15th century, um, owned by the Prince of Liechtenstein. And that is a fake. That has turned out to be a fake. And there are a number of them. And they are oh all traced God. to the same artist who is obviously a fabulously talented artist. And then yeah. I started looking back in into that. But my my goal in in writing this was to first of all assimilate as much of this as I could because I'm not a scientifically oriented person, but to understand it well enough that I could boil it down to just the essential things that I could pass along. So I, you know, I wanted to pass along things that were true and accurate, but I realized I couldn't go into the technical details and, and, and I'm not really qualified to do that. But it's, it's to me fascinating because today, especially after, um, when was the first atomic bomb set off the, the test? And 1944 or something like that. Um, since then, there are um, radioactive isotopes in everything. You, we cannot get away from it. It's it, it's in our bones. It, it's in pigments. It's you know, and so one of the things that they look for is that, and they can tell you know if if there's something embedded in that paint or pigments or binders that was not invented. <laughs> in the 15th century so um and and that's how they caught the the fake franz hall's painting was um they found the hair was that, a fiber a fiber of something wasn't it uh yeah well that yeah that that was mine um so I hope i'm giving away a little that's okay but um yeah it's so i found it fascinating and i'm glad if if readers find it fascinating too but oh you know oh, they will yeah well good yeah because you think of all the all the art in the world you know from years 
centuries past that yeah. people have spent millions of dollars on, and you wonder, hmm. <laughs> well, and, and, and there are undoubtedly paintings hanging in galleries and museums and private collections um, that have never been tested and maybe not what yeah. they pur- purport to be. But but there was one forger who was extremely uh, talented, and this was back like Second World War, before Second World War period, and um, he was caught, but then he almost became a national hero because he forged a painting and sold it to one of the Nazi officials, I think it was Goebbels maybe, who – one of them who who loved art, and everybody thought that was great that he had fooled Goebbels. So he was almost became like a Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's hey, that's now there you go. There's another there's another possibility for a book. <laughs> yes. Now the thing is, you know, if if art is if the value of art, if what makes something a great painting is what it looks like, in a way, it's like. If this looks like <laughs> like mm-hmm. the work of of a famous painter, then maybe it should be just as valuable because it's just as good, you know. Well, you know, it it isn't illegal to copy a painting, right? Or even to paint a painting in the style of someone. It it isn't uh, against the law to even sell that painting. What is against the law is to lie and say that it was painted by right. the other artist. Right. Um, oh, so okay. A, okay. a lot of painters learn their craft by actually copying, you know, the old masters. Well, sure, and, sure. Yeah, but styles change in, in art. And so if a person has the gift to reproduce the old masters, they might not be that prize today you know yeah. we, we like art more impressionistic type art emotional art um so you know yeah you that's a good point you have to go with the trend or <laughs> or or do something else i guess well in in your book in the shadow of memory there's um you know obviously a lot of information about antiquities and mm. also architecture and also the countryside, the setting, um, in <laughs> in um, what part of England is it? Suffolk. Suffolk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I've actually been to Bury St Edmunds, by the way. Oh, have you? <laughs> yes, okay. I yeah. have. I, I love that town. It's incredibly charming. Stayed at the inn where supposedly Charles Dickens stayed. And, oh, yeah. and when when I was there, it was like this flower contest. There were um, window boxes oh, nice. full of flowers everywhere and right yeah. across from the that inn is a um where the magna carta was signed i think and mm. and also it's like this ruin of an of an abbey or something like that and it was quite lovely um and i had the are you talking about the ruins yeah yeah the park where you can walk through yes yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and i'm thinking there was a really, really good Indian restaurant there. <laughs> well, next time I go, I will have to look for that. Yeah. We, haven't, we haven't found that one yet. Yeah, I, I was there on business actually, but mm. um, it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful part of England. It it is. It, it it's a 
part of England that is not very well known. It's not on the tourist track. Right. Um, and so people often miss it, which is too bad, because it is a very, very ancient part of, of England. Um, Suffolk, and then right above it is Norfolk. And that they were kind of the center of the old Anglo-Saxon culture. In fact, the names come from the North Folk and the South Folk. And so um, Suffolk is actually where they do dig up what one of my books, the second one, involves the digging up of a hoard, you know, um, gold and, and, you know, valuable things that were hidden underground and then lost and then found again. Mm. But that often happens in Suffolk because that was the place where, um, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxon culture lost out to the Normans. And so there were battles and uh, property was seized. And um, so it's just a very ancient part of England. It's, it's a farm country as well, kind of big sky, um, a lot of food is produced there, but the villages are just so quaint. It, it's like England the way you picture it in your mind, kind of. Yes, yeah. Qu- quintessential mm-hmm. England. And, yeah. and like many parts of England, um, it was the wealth was based on wool and wool uh, fabric production. And then um, when that kind of went out of fashion, like the Cotswolds, um, the villages kind of remain the way they are because they weren't important enough to anybody to update. So they just kind of stayed in their medieval state, which of course now is wonderful to be able to, <laughs> to go back and you almost feel like you're, you're time traveling. Um, so I, I love that. And it's very England. good for uh, settings for, for uh, BBC shows. Yes. <laughs> it, it has become more and more popular. They, you know, there are, um, salt marshes there's a this wonderful coastline there's the interior it's near cambridge um yeah so it's it's a great setting now there's a lot of scenes in the shadow of memory that take place in pubs and restaurants are they real ones or no no they <laughs> they are based on real ones yes, so, um, yeah yeah i i actually one that is in the that, that I just mentioned called the Henny Swan. Um, that's in the first chapter, and that one is is a real pub, but um, but but I don't say much about it. Yeah, because things happen in these areas, and you know you you never want to get on the wrong side of somebody. So they are <laughs> definitely based on pubs that that I have spent time in. Um, love English pubs. There's just nothing like it here. We we just don't have it. it. It's a whole culture. And, you know, the interesting thing is that, generally speaking, England isn't known for its food. But you are, are writing really beautiful <laughs> food scenes in, in this book. Well, th- that actually has changed. Um, England has a reputation, and, and they still have it for having pretty bland overcooked food and I can say it's true because I had a Scottish grandmother and I mean her her food was like boiled within an inch of its life always and um but that has really changed and so now they they have what they used to call gastropubs where 
they have restaurants and they actually have chefs and so the food in England is is really wonderful I mean it obviously depends on where you go but but a lot of the pubs have just excellent excellent food and um and I love to eat and and uh so <laughs> it's kind of fun to talk about it Kate loves to eat good food too she's she is like me and that she's not the world's best cook but um but her friend Vivian Bunn is an excellent cook, so she gets to eat some of Vivian's food. And are some of the dishes, like when you, you have them ordering in restaurants, she and, and Tom, and, and are these things that you've actually had on menus and ordered? And Yes, yeah, they're, they are. And when I need to refresh my memory, all I do is, I, you know, you can look up online and you can find menus from places you've been. Right, right. Yeah, I you know I agree. Some of the best meals I've had in the world were in were in England, but they weren't mm-hmm. English food. <laughs> like I said, that, oh, that well, you know, Indian yeah. restaurant. I had the a wonderful Chinese meal with um, a Chinese businessman that we were um, meeting in in Brighton, and um, oh, and it was it was almost like I think he might have even owned the restaurant. I'm not sure. It was so wonderful, and then. There was a Spanish rest. No, was it or Spanish or Argentine? I think it was Argentinian in mm-hmm. London that I went to one time. That was just mm-hmm. really, really excellent. So well, we we live in a you know multicultural <laughs> world now, and um, of course you know with the the history of um, India with England, Indian food is extremely popular and. Great Britain and Chinese restaurants are all over the world. <laughs> I, I like to tell the story about this fabulous meal I had in Hong Kong at a Span- uh-huh. Spanish restaurant with <laughs> with a mariachi band playing Elvis songs. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that that is so funny. So my 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 uh, story about that is uh, we went to we we were on business and we were in a village in the interior of China and it was one of those villages that we were seeing a factory and they didn't hadn't seen Western people much and so like kids were like circling us on their bikes yelling out phrases they had learned in school you know, <laughs> and we went to this restaurant and our hosts um, of course nobody spoke English so our hosts ordered for us and it was really great and they were bringing the food and all of these Chinese business people that we were with were getting these wonderful baskets you know reed baskets with the rice and all of this wonderful stuff and when our food came it was like a slab of raw beef and greasy French fries. Oh no! Because they they assumed that that's what we would want. Oh. And we were just like, thank you, you know, smiling, but like, oh, I want yours. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I've um, my business partners have some really interesting stories to tell about uh, food in China that is unusual to say the least. Um, mm-hmm. Most most of the places I've been were more weren't the you know weren't the weren't like that. They were you know more sophisticated. So I didn't I didn't get the uh, really yeah. Well, they they do things. eat different protein than we do. Yes, <laughs> that's all yes. I'll say. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. They use more of yeah yeah. So 
You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Connie Berry, author of The Shadow of Memory. Now, in writing mysteries, plot is obviously really crucial. Um, you know, we talk to other writers who maybe just start with the character and the seed of an idea and, and write a whole book from it. But with a mystery, you kind of got to know what's going to happen, don't you, before you start? I, I feel that I do, um, but I have lots of friends who are what they call pantsers, that they, they literally begin writing and they don't know who is going to die and who is going to have done it. Oh, wow. And they, and oh they just goodness. write. Yeah, they're, they're actually more writers like that than you might imagine. And I give them a lot oh. of credit. And I think it must be that kind of um, creative part of their brain that is sort of taking over or something. Um, and then there are other writers uh, who do extensive outlines. They just, you know, write. I mean, it's almost like writing a first draft of the book. It's so extensive. And I fall somewhere in, in the middle. So I have plot points um, <clears throat> that that I know, you know, throughout the book, maybe major plot points. I don't necessarily know how I'm going to get from point A to point B to point C to point D. So, um Things sometimes change, and sometimes it's unexpected to me when things change, and then I have to go back and kind of make sure everything lines up from what I've written before. Well, I think, you know, your mysteries are actually very complex because at least yeah. in this one, and I think from what I've read about your other books too, you're actually dealing with mysteries in like two different time periods, the present and the past and how they inter. inter intersect mm -hmm. and there's a lot of moving parts a lot of characters that have something to do with this and you, we don't really know what um, so I would think you I don't see how you could write this complex of mystery without having put a, plotted it out in advance well yeah as uh, well when you don't plot it out exactly in advance, that means a lot of revision. Ah, uh, yeah. But I, I don't mind that because that is actually my, my favorite part of writing. Uh. Um, I, I find writing from scratch, not, you know, blank page, that to me is really work. It's, it's <laughs> very difficult. Um, once I get something down, even if it's not good, um, then the fun begins for me because I love to revise. And one of the things that I always do is I'm going through maybe, I, I don't know how many times I go through it, many, many, many times. But at one of the, the last times, I have a yellow sheet. And as I'm going through and reading it from the beginning, every time I come to a part going, ooh, did I, you know, is is that correct? You know, I should check that timeline or did I remember to say something about that? Or so I just come up with a whole sheet, maybe, oh, maybe four or five sheets of questions for myself. And then I just go through one by one and I just, you know, kind of fill all the plot holes. I don't know how other authors do it. I've never actually asked, but that's <laughs> the method that I have developed. Um, and, right. and even, even with all that, um, there are, 
in in just about every book that you find there there is some mistake there that mm. somebody didn't catch because you know all the times I've been through it then then my editor goes through it and then we have the copy editors who go through it and I've got beta readers and um I don't actually know of a mistake in the shadow of memory but if there is one I'm sure I'll eventually hear from <laughs> I'm sure you will <laughs> Connie, oh, I've been having no. so much fun talking to you, I almost forgot to ask you to read. So would you please oh, read yes, a little bit yes. before we run out of time? Well, thank you. I <laughs> am going to read from the first chapter. Actually, it's Chapter 1, Scene 1. Friday, August 21st, Long Barston, Suffolk, England. The last place one expects to find a dead body is a graveyard. Above ground, I mean. It started with Angela Vine's hen party, what we in the States would call a bachelorette. There were 12 of us. Besides me, the only American, Angela had invited seven girlfriends from her days at university and veterinary college, plus her very pregnant sister from Sudbury, the designated driver and the reason the party was being held three weeks before the wedding. The festivities began with a champagne brunch at the Henny Swan, a lovely pub on the River Stour followed by Angela's final dress fitting in Bury St. Edmunds. That evening we were joined by Lady Barbara Finchley Ford, Long Barston's local peeress, and Vivian Bunn, the bossy, opinionated, and lovable 70-something with whom I was currently living. After a smashing dinner at Finchley Hall, courtesy of Lady Barbara, we headed to the Finchley Arms for drinks and all-girl dancing. At 9.30 we were on our way to the rectory where Hattie Nuthall, the rector's loyal housekeeper had promised us quantities of strong black tea and something sweet. As far as hen parties go, Angela Vines was pretty tame. Of course, when you're marrying a clergyman in the Church of England, a certain decorum is expected. Anyway, Angela wasn't the type to hire male strippers or swill massive quantities of booze. <laughs> Good thing. I have a graduate degree in British history and literature. More than two glasses of wine, and I'm liable to start telling Beowulf jokes. <laughs> we marched arm in arm up Long Barston's High Street, singing an off-key version of Going to the Chapel. I'm glad you came, Kate. Angela threaded her arm around my waist. We haven't known each other long, but now you're engaged to that handsome detective inspector. We have so much in common. We do, I lied. Actually, I had no idea what we might have in common. Gift registries? Baby plans? <laughs> Not likely. I was a 46-year-old widow, the mother of two grown children. Angela was not quite 30, just starting out in life. In three weeks, she and Edmund Fox, rector of St. Ethelric's, I'd finally stop calling him the dishy vicar, would be jetting <laughs> off for a two-week honeymoon in Majorca. Then Angela would move into the rectory where she would make the perfect clergyman's wife, caring, approachable, diplomatic, down to earth and far too busy to pry into other people's lives. She had her own veterinary practice, keeping Long Barston's dogs, cats, budgies, hamsters, and occasional horses and far farm animals in the peak of health. As much as I liked her, and I really did, Angela's future was falling along pleasant but predictable lines. Then there was my future, adrift like my wedding plans in a never-never land of uncertainty. Tom and I, both widowed, both in our mid-40s, had been engaged for nearly three months. We still hadn't decided where we would tie the knot, 
much less where we would settle down as a married couple or how we would solve the thorny problem of two careers on two very separate continents. I owned a thriving antiques business in Jackson Falls, Ohio. Detective Inspector Tom Mallory, soon to be Detective Chief Inspector when the odious DCI Dennis Eccles departed for his new position at Constabulary Headquarters, was busy catching criminals and generally keeping the peace in the English county of Suffolk. Tom had hinted at a ring, rather mysteriously, I thought, but had yet to produce one. Not that a ring mattered to me in the slightest. What did matter was the question of our future domestic arrangements. Tom owned a lovely period farmhouse in the nearby village of Saxby St. Clair. It came complete with a thatched roof, an inglenook fireplace, an agate cooker, a beautiful garden, and a mother-in-law. Tom's mother, Liz, who I suspected was still plotting my overthrow. Buckingham (laughs) Palace wouldn't be big enough for the two of us. Come on, Angie, one of the younger women called over her shoulder. Angela jogged up to join them, her short tulle veil bouncing behind her. By the time we reached the rectory, we'd segued into Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Even Vivian, not famous for frivolity, joined in. We tumbled laughing through the door to find a table spread with homemade French macarons, individual raspberry cheesecakes, and tiny heart-shaped pedophore decorated with pink frosting roses and a toothpick flag saying, I do. Later, after the tea and sugar kicked in, the mood turned nostalgic as the young women told stories about Angela's days at university and peppered her sister with questions about pregnancy and childbirth. Kate, dear, Lady Barbara approached us. It's rather late for the senior set. Time Vivian and I were tucked up in our beds. Of course, let me say goodbye to Angela and Hattie. No, no, you stay and enjoy the fun. Vivian will see me home. Actually, I'm ready for a good night's sleep myself. That wasn't quite true, but with Lady Barbara's failing eyesight and the slight unsteadiness I'd noticed in Vivian recently, no way would I allow them to trek through Finchley Park alone in the dark. We gathered our belongings, thanked Hattie for the boxes of goodies she'd packed up for us and said our goodbyes. We followed the gravel path through St. Ethelric's graveyard. Above us, the sky was a deep, inky blue. The nearly full moon glowed like a giant baroque pearl lighting our path. I let the older women walk ahead of me so I could keep my eye on them. They were giggling like schoolgirls, which made me wonder how many pins they downed at the arms. Something purple caught my eye. It was a sock in a shoe attached to a leg. A man sagged against a headstone. His chin rested against his chest. Stop, I called out. Someone's ill. Crouching, I placed my finger on his neck. I was wrong. Someone was dead. Lying just beyond the man's outstretched fingers, partially hidden by a tuft of grass, was a piece of folded paper. I picked it up and read, Vivian Bunn, Rose Cottage, Long Barston. And that's it. And, and that's I it. Wish, wish I had <laughs> oh, a better, uh, better English accent. <laughs> well, yeah, I have, but Kate's not I English. A, I so. have a question I want to ask. <laughs> Did you, uh, you know, you said that you had written, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that you had written mysteries as a child. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. Did you ever think of publishing those for children? You know, um, somebody 
asked me that one time. I I don't think they're they're good enough, really. Um, ch- children's literature is so so good. It's such high quality things being published, and mine are just little things that I wrote to to amuse myself. Actually, if if I did publish them, it might be like in a blog or something, because some of them are pretty funny. Um, <laughs> now looking back. Well. <laughs> Okay, I'm just curious because <laughs> it sounds like a possibility, you know. Yeah. Well, it would probably, I mean, you could possibly use, start with them. They would probably require some work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're all just things that I was interested in, like the possibility of elves living in living in trees and you know just one one of them i think i might have read this somewhere actually i i don't know maybe i you know took a story that i'd heard and but you know it was about a little girl who gets a glimpse of an elfin community and then later she doubts that that was really true. Maybe she was dreaming, but then she finds a little tiny green felt hat. Mm. <laughs> How cute is yeah. that? See, that's, that? I think that would be neat. I really do. I, I because, you know, and I'll tell you what, kids, kids are, are they're un- unindated with, with the stuff that's going on in this world. And oh, golly, yes. They need, I think they need some of that. They need some of what you what we're talking about there, just there. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just just the the innocence of childhood, the, yeah. the child's imagination, um, yeah. just you know, the possibility of animals talking. Oh, I I, I always just <laughs> wished I lived in a world where animals could talk. And now I think, gosh, if if my dog could talk, she'd probably be very irritating. <laughs> <laughs> Connie, I was curious, you know, you mentioned you had a degree in English and English history mm-hmm. and that you retired in 2017. What was your career? I taught theology for 25 years. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so it, it perhaps isn't a, a natural segue from theology to murder, but um, <laughs> that's what happened. Well, well, you had quite a quite a varied uh, experience in in life, and that's that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yes. And yeah. your your books are published by Crooked Lane Publishing, which is, I believe, um, an arm of Penguin Random they, House. Um, Penguin Random House is their distributor. Is their distributor um, okay? Yeah, they're they're um, a branch of what's called Cliff Brown Fox. Ah. So they're okay. they are um, yeah. And how did you um, find them, or how did they find you? Well, I told you that I had done this massive revision, and I, again, I, I am forgetting the exact time frame, but I finished it on January 1st of, it must have been 2017, maybe, possibly, or 18, well, one of the two. And so that was January 1st. And then in February, I went to a writer's conference in Florida called Sleuth Fest. And one of the the things that you could do as an unpublished writer was you could pay 20 bucks for a meeting with either an editor or an agent. And they would read 
a chapter of your book, and actually I had um, started on my second book, so I decided I would um, have, you know, the first chapter of my second book read, and so um, so I did that, and you just put your preferences, but you don't really know who you're going to get, so I got my editor at Crooked Lane was there, and she read the first chapter of my second book, and she said, I, I love this. Um, and she said, I, I realize this isn't the first book in the series, right? And I said, yeah, that's true. And she said, well, you didn't publish self-publish the first one, did you? And I said, no. She said, you didn't publish it with someone else, did you? And I said, no. And she said, you mean it's unpublished? I said, yeah. <laughs> and she said, so why don't you send that to me? And so I, I did. Actually, that very night, I sent it to her. And um, and I thought, ah, oh, you know, that was great. She she liked the chapter, but, you know, she's going to come back and say, oh, this is great, but it's not really for me. But she didn't. She said, I, I just love this, you know. So on the basis of that, I got a, a two-book contract. Oh, well, congratulations. And, Connie, we're out of time, but I do want to say how much I enjoyed reading this book. And well, it, it was just I'm a delight. So it was it, it transported me to England. It was it was yeah. there was so much kind of substance to it. Uh, and, and the mystery was really interesting. So um, so thank mm-hmm. you and look oh, forward to many more. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been a delight talking to you both. And Caroline, do thank you, you have for the opportunity? Oh, of course. Caroline, do you have some closing words for us? Yes, I do. Speaking of Kate's mother. Uh, she is quoted at the end of the book and uh, saying, uh, Kate says that my mother always told me, do the right thing and the right feelings will follow eventually. And that's true. <laughs> yeah, my my mother said that. Oh. Yeah, I figured that. <laughs> I figured that. <laughs> my mother is, is quoted. My my mother is not Kate's mom. She, she is not the same person, but... Some things she said make it into the book in Kate's mother's mouth. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, that's great. Thank you, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices.